Please turn to the book of Genesis. I will be reading various portions from Genesis 6 through 9. And now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And that flood continued for forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. So Noah went out of the ark and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in His heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a redeeming for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. 
For God made man in His own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Blessed is the reading, Father, of Your Holy Word to our hearts and to our minds this morning. May we hear what You have done and why You have done it this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. As we make our way in this series from Genesis to Revelation through redemptive history, keep always in the back of your mind from God's purposes and perspective, He has always had the end, the goal, the future in view. All history has an appointed end future. It's linear, meaning there's a highway of time and space that God created for us. And He's unfolding something. One thing comes before another thing, which another thing comes after that. And in everything that God is doing in His sovereign providence in redemptive history is not disconnected from what's coming in the future. God had His eternal Son, Jesus Christ, slain from before the creation and Noah's flood and the Abrahamic covenant, and everything else that is to come. He's not... Put it this way. If, if you're going to build a, a highway, 
Those who build highways don't just start, get their men, and start, let's just kind of move this way through the desert on I-40 and see where we end up. They have a goal. They know I-40 is going to go from, from, from Barstow to Flagstaff. And they look at Flagstaff, and they get in the air, and they know oh, Flagstaff's here, and they see mountains, and they see bodies of water, and they know when the road needs to turn. They're building the linear road based upon an understanding of the goal that is in mind. And so, when we come across this story this morning and every other story in the Bible, always in God's mind, He's not trying to, whoop, I woke up this morning, things have changed. This was last week's sermon. I wonder what I should do. He has planned and purposed to do everything that He did do from eternity past, and He has done it perfectly. If it is true that Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of history, then that means when God establishes His covenant with all mankind through Noah, the Noahic covenant, and then the Abrahamic covenant, then the Mosaic covenant, then the Davidic covenant... All those covenants are being done clearly in God's mind to lead to the new covenant that He will establish in Jesus Christ. Hold that now towards the end of the sermon. We'll come back there. Because when we approach Bible, New Testament, Old Testament, proper exegesis, big word for how do I read to get the meaning that I'm supposed to get there in its context. The point is, in its context, look at it. How would the Israelites, when this book of the law came to them in Sinai, how would they have understood this text? They did not know that Jesus was the name of a God's eternal Son that would die on a cross. That's how we do. And so, as we approach it this morning, the first thing is this. And I hope you felt it just in reading. This is not a children's story. This is the most terrifying demonstration of God's holy wrath revealed in redemptive history. And as we look at it this morning, there are three main points that are right there in the text that we are supposed to see. First, we will see that God is making sure He demonstrates that all humanity universally is steeped in sin. And our hearts are evil continually. The second thing we will see is that God's patience towards sinful humanity does come to an end. And His wrath will destroy unrepentant sinners. And the third thing we see is this. Nevertheless, even though that's true, God has promised to put enmity between the line of born-agains and unregenerates. 
He will make for Himself a people. And in this story, we see Him acting again to preserve the godly line and keep it alive. The first point. All humanity is steeped in sin. The human heart is wicked. Your heart is wicked. We have seen in the preceding weeks the fall. And as soon as Adam fell, he blames his wife. We saw his son Cain get jealous and murder his brother Abel. We saw Cain's descendant Lamech Kill a boy for wounding him. We saw him become a bigamist. We saw him boast in his murder and in himself. And then we come to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then verse 11 shows that all this inward evil was released and breaking out in actions all over the earth. Quote, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted corrupted their way on the earth. And so God's judgment in the flood drives home the point that all men are guilty. Sinners and deserve judgment. The purpose of this historical reality recorded in Genesis, of God killing all human beings on this earth, except those eight, is to point out the essence and the culpability of sin in His just judgment of it. In other words, the flood was not to, oh, it got so bad, but here's little Noah. And let me wipe them all out so that I can purge away sin. And look at this, we got a new, new sinless humanity. Oh, no. Noah, as we have seen in these preceding weeks, like every other human being born from Adam and Eve, was born into sin and so were his children. And we see in the text in Genesis that after the flood, the condition of the human heart was not improved. Listen to chapter 8, verse 21. This is after the flood. God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man for or because the intention of man's heart, even now, is evil from his youth. God is clear. After the flood, original sin 
being born with a sin nature was Noah, his sons, their sons and daughters, after them, original sin. Spiritual death towards God. Independence from God. A heart that cannot love and delight and properly obey God remains after the flood. And it's not just theory like in chapter 8, verse 21. We get the example with Noah himself in chapter 9, verse 20 to 21. After they got out of the ark, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and he became drunk, staggering, drunk, and lay naked in the tent. And we see in the text that Noah's sin led to the sin of his son, very much like Adam's sin led to the sin of his sons. Noah's sin passed on to his lineage. Never, let's not make the mistake of thinking that after the flood and the eight are saved and there's Noah, that God began this new sinless population. Chapter 6, verse 8 makes it clear. The reason Noah was spared was because of grace. Because, it says, He found Favor. It's the word for grace in Hebrew. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was not without sin. But, he found grace, as the text says, because he walked with God. Now you're going to put the last few weeks together here. There's a flow here. What that means is not that Noah was sinless. What it means is the grace that allowed Noah to walk with God means Noah agreed with God that his heart was evil and wicked continuously. And he hated it. Wow, where'd that come from? Noah had sin indwelling in him, but what was different from all other mankind when the flood came, is that he knew it and hated it. That's why the text says in chapter 6, verse 9, he's called a righteous and a blameless man. Blameless in the Old Testament does not mean a person who does not have a sin nature or has not sinned. It refers to a person who comes to the realization of their sin and hates it and resists persisting in the patterns of behavior of that sin which they wake up with every day. There is this inborn I know it, and there I go again, as Noah would say, and I hate it. It defames God, whom I love. And there's this tension in him. A righteous man in the Old Testament doesn't mean a person who has lived perfectly righteous, sinlessly. It means a person because of the miracle we saw two weeks ago of new birth, of regeneration by the Spirit. 
coming in from pure mercy and causing the heart of Seth, of Enoch, of Noah to come alive, to see and to taste how precious and valuable the Creator God is. This is confirmed in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. God the Holy Spirit has the Hebrew writer commentate on our text this morning. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Not His righteousness. Noah's righteousness was not His. He was considered righteous because God imputed His own perfect righteousness in Christ who was to come but was as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world to Noah because of His faith. Noah was not an exception to the rule of universal sinfulness. The point is, he had an experience that the Old Testament calls circumcision of the heart. What the New Testament calls new birth or regeneration. That new birth, the work of the Spirit, as we saw two weeks ago, is what gave rise to Noah's repentance and faith and abhorrence for the sin that was still in him and his pursuit, therefore, of mercy of God. Therefore, the doctrine of sin. All Humans are born into it and sin because we like it is the first lesson of the story of Noah and the flood. Apart from new birth, apart from the 100% work of God, the mercy of God in new birth, which produces faith, it could be said of every man, woman, and child, not only in Noah's day, but today, Genesis 6, 5b. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. The second lesson is that God's holding back judgment, His long-suffering, His patience is not forever. It has an end. And when it does, as the story unfolds, God destroys unrepentant sinners. Genesis 6-7 says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them Then in verse 13, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, 
For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And in verse 17, God makes it clear that His wrath will be expressed in the flood waters. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And then the sobering, biblical, historical words of chapter 7, verse 21. And every human being, all flesh and animals, died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth died and all mankind. The point of the text, I think, is crystal clear. God is demonstrating He hates sin. And He punishes unrepentant sinners. When Jesus came into the world, He taught the same thing. Only that Jesus made it crystal clear that the ultimate punishment is far worse. It's eternal. Matthew 18.8 And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away for it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. So God's flood and God's eternal Son teach the same lesson. God hates sin. And He punishes unrepentant sinners with an unspeakable judgment. You know, Paul made it clear, 1 Corinthians, referring to Old Testament happenings and God's judgment, and here's one of them. These things happen for our instruction. It doesn't just say, well, it kind of happened and God woke up and said, I'll use it and write about it. It doesn't merely say they were only written, which it does say, so we can read about it, but it also says they happened for Christians. They happened. So those of us who are being caught up into the Gospel of Christ, could see it and be warned and feel an appropriate fear. And we will see, ultimately, peace and joy. They happened. God made them in His redemptive history, which was preordained before the foundation of the world, to happen. Because God to show clearly sin, what it is, how He hates it, and His just judgment against it. The third lesson, though that's true, that we see in the story of the flood, is this same God 
who prophesied, who promised in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between your seed, serpent, Satan, and the woman's seed. And the seed of the woman shall crush Satan your head. God preserved was reaching out through Noah and his family and showing his promise is always kept. He's preserving the godly line, the born-again line. Remember, God created humanity for the purpose of extending the knowledge of His glory throughout the earth. Reflected in people like Abel and Seth and Enoch and Noah reflected in their hearts as they have come to an awakening to treasure the glory of God. And therefore, He preserves that godly line which will continue on. In a very real sense, in the reading of Genesis and following the narration, it's as if Noah is Adam. He's this new Adam. Right? There's Adam, there's Eve. And everyone came from them. You finally get down to just Noah and his wife. And every human being has come from them. Listen in chapter 9, verse 1, how familiar it is to the creation story. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in verse 7, He repeats the command, and you be fruitful and multiply and team on the earth and multiply in it. And so God is prepared to start over with a new Adam. But this time, the beginning is not in the Garden of Eden before there was sin. They get off the ark. The world, the corruption, the effects of God's judgment over sin has not changed. And therefore, as they are to multiply, there are three dangers that we see in the story that God's going to act and move in order to continue to preserve mankind. And especially the line or the seed of the woman. There are real threats. The first threat is animals. Wild beasts. The second threat is man himself. And the final third threat is God. So God makes provision to protect so that until final judgment, mankind will flourish on the earth. Look at the first. First, God gives to man now new rights over the animals that threaten him. Chapter 9, verses 2 to 3. Noah, your sons, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens 
upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Just pause for a moment. I have no problem with Christian people deciding to be a vegetarian. The moment a person claims that their vegetarianism has a moral issue to it, it's false doctrine. They're wrong. God has ordained for man to eat. It means kill before you eat them. Animals. And so we see here, God speaks to the new Adam and his sons. And what he's doing is he's still supporting his own mission. The mission to have mankind fill the earth and extend his glory by protecting them from the threat of wild beasts. I will cause, God says, animals to be in dread of you, mankind. And so man now has the right to put the animals in dread and to use them for food. The second threat, it's not only animals, but it is human beings themselves. And so God makes provision to restrain murder. Remember what happened before here, if you've been following before the institution of what we're going to see here, which is essentially God instituting human government, law. Before that, the story went this way. Two lines. The godly line and the unregenerate, wicked, evil line. And the unregenerate, wicked, evil line had no restraints to the point where the godly line started to say, how are we going to protect ourselves? I know, we'll start marrying their daughters. And it ended up all but destroying the godly line to the point we get to the flood. After the flood, God institutes the only law that is found not only in the Ten Commandments, but is found in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that is capital punishment. Quote, chapter 9, Verses 5 to 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in His own image. That is not a prophecy. He's not looking and saying, well, this is what you're going to end up doing. This is a commandment of God. When one man murders, takes the life of an innocent, I will require he die by the hand of men. Now, one of the 
I will use the word, stupidest argument in our society today against evangelical Christians is, well, I'm not going to take your fighting for the right of life for unborn babies seriously when so many of you believe in killing murderers. As, because as if that were a contradiction. And it's not a contradiction. They're both based on the same biblical reality. In that text, read the last line, the word for means here's the reason. God made man in His own image. That's why God says when one man has the audacity to snuff out the life of the image of God, I say, get together and have that person killed. Why have them killed? Based upon the reality of the sanctity of human life. What's the reason that the church does and ought to fight the murdering, the killing of pre-born human beings? Sanctity of human life. What's the reason they ought to be in favor of the killing of those who take life's innocence called murder? Same reason. Sanctity of human life. God gives us law now. Remember, before the flood, God kept to Himself the right of any judgment. Cain was a murderer. And he said, don't kill him. Sevenfold judgment on anyone who disobeys me in this. That was before the flood. Now after the flood, God says, here it is now. I require you, human society, to deal with murder because I created man in my image. Remember, what's his purpose? Genesis 3.15, to keep the line of the woman alive, along with the line of the serpent. And government restrains evil. It's ordained by God. When a person presumes to snuff out a human being made in the image of God, it is a direct attack on God. Turn to Genesis, not Genesis, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. I just want to turn there very briefly because now, in later revelation, the Apostle Paul makes this truth crystal clear. Chapter 13, starting with verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad conduct. It's called basic moral laws of the land. 
Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he, that is the governing authority, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For the governing authority does not bear the sword, the guillotine, the hanging noose, guns, for nothing. For he, the governing authority, is the servant of God. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And therefore, one must be in submission, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And so we see, as Paul made clear, and as God's words to Noah and His command makes clear, the execution, capital punishment for murderers is a reflection of God's justice and wrath through mankind in the earth. And ultimately, it restrains evil so that evil in its acting out never gets to the place that it got in the days of Noah where God wiped out the earth. And that brings us to the Noahic covenant. Noahic for the word Noah. The covenant God made with all humanity and all beasts to and through Noah. Where have we been? First, there are these threat from animals. And there's a threat from other human beings and the evil that is within us. God protects by making provision for it to be restrained. Yet, there's one more threat to man. And that threat is God Himself. How shall the earth ever be filled with the glory of God through multiplying humanity on the earth if God again comes and justly wipes us all out? And so to protect humanity Against this threat, God makes a covenant. Chapter 9, verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never, here it is, again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And the same promise is made earlier in chapter 8, verse 22, in the positive way, when he says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. I give you protection from the animals. I give you protection, make provision to protect humanity from yourselves, and now I give you protection from Me, God. He promises, I will uphold humanity rather than wipe it out. 
As long as the world lasts, I will withhold my universal judgment and preserve it until that day. Summarize where we've been. The flood makes it clear. God purposed to demonstrate the wickedness of all humanity. The essence of sin, which is the nature of all man, as our hearts are evil continuously. Secondly, God hates sin and His patience. Here's the lesson. Here's the lesson Paul would say. Hear it. This is why no problem preaching the Gospel with these texts to people today. Hear it. God's patience does have an end. It's coming. When you wake up and you feel healthy, and you go about your merry way as if death isn't inevitable, and as if there is no God, it's not a sign of approval. His patience will come to an end. And He will destroy unrepentant sinners. And He, thirdly, does not give up on His purpose to make for Himself a people. But He preserves the godly line. Remember back at the beginning of the introduction of this sermon. Redemptive history is like that highway. When God Himself poured out His wrath in killing every human being on earth. He had the cross in mind. He had all those who would be saved by the cross in mind. What we know now, we're Christians, is this. The flood of judgment did not eradicate sin. It demonstrates God's wrath. I can just say the words. I can't, I don't, nothing's gonna, I can do can make us feel it, but may God, You give us hearts to feel the reality of the flood in Your wrath today. That's why He did it. That's why He did it. That's why it's not a child's story. So that when we get to the New Testament, the apostles would look at the flood had no problem transitioning the truth found in that text to the reality of Christ Jesus and the Gospel and the predicament that the world is in today. For instance, Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 5, For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same Word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. 
being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. In 1 Peter, Peter uses it again. He says, now let's look at the, this merciful thing in judgment called the ark. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. They formerly did not obey. This is evangelism today. This ought to be the heart of evangelism. They formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself used the flood story as a very vivid example of His point. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 to 39, Jesus said, But concerning that day and hour, in the future, and still for us the future, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the second coming of the Son of Man. This is a teenager's story, Alex. Teenagers know they're going to live forever. Teenagers, by nature, are eating and drinking and playing as if the flood isn't coming. Don't be one. Let us this morning feel the lessons of this story and feel the flow of redemptive history. Remember this pivotal verse in Genesis. Genesis 3.15 I, God, am doing something. I will put enmity between the line of the woman and the line of the serpent. We saw two weeks ago. What, what, how does He do that? By causing those whom He will to be born again and they're of that godly line. And then we come to chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God promised 
feel redemptive history. This is for us, for you. God promised, and thus He can do no other, to keep the lines distinct. He will preserve the line of the woman. And even when that line all but got eradicated by the intermarriage with the ungodly line, Noah found favor. Now, I want to turn to one last verse in our text. Genesis 8, verses 20 to 21. And feel what we're supposed to feel. Because now we're way down the highway. We're almost in Flagstaff. We're looking back on that highway that has been built with the end in mind. We have been born on this side of the cross. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the aroma, the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in His heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nevertheless, or excuse me, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. The text here is clear. God's gracious covenant with Noah was a response to Noah making a substitutionary sacrifice. We'll see sacrifices throughout the Old Testament. We're going to see the whole highway. The New Testament book of Hebrews makes it clear that the killing of animals and sin offerings slaughtered before the Lord could never take away sin. But God demanded it before the cross. For in it, it was picturing Jesus Christ, perfect, flawless sacrifice. If Peter could say, the floodwaters came, And there's another judgment in the future now, and it's going to be with fire. If he could say, becoming a Christian is like being on the ark. When we see this sacrifice in the text, is it not a foreshadowing of the perfect sacrifice of Christ? Is this not a foreshadowing of the promise that came before that God will through a substitutionary sacrifice, not merely these birds and clean animals that Noah's doing, but through the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. John made it clear The Son of God appeared in order to destroy the works of the serpent, of Satan. I'm going to take the time.
Just, I want to feel it again. Jesus tells a parable. It's up by Jerusalem. They got to get this. They know. These are Jews. They know the temple. They've been there so often. Every morning, 9 o'clock, every afternoon at 3 p.m., there is the sacrifice, slaughtering the animal and the burnt offering going up for the sins of the people. Jesus also knows these Jewish traders called tax collectors are not allowed to be in the temple. They're supposed to be cleaned out. they got little cops in the temple to get these unclean type of people like tax collectors out. And Jesus said, look, there is a Pharisee who was in the temple and he went up there and said, oh, look how great I am, God. Look how great I am. I don't act like that guy and I don't act, and I certainly don't act like that tax collector way over there. I'm a Pharisee. I'm up at the highest place proclaiming His righteousness. Jesus knew what He was doing and these were fighting words to His hearers. Then He said there was a tax collector who when He was in the temple, don't miss it, The offering has gone up now. The smoke has risen up to the nostrils of God. The Pharisee responded one way. Self-righteousness. The tax collector said, be merciful, but not really. That Greek word is the same word and the same root of the New Testament word propitiation. Be, which means your wrath through substitution is turned away. And He said with the verb form, be propitious toward Me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man went away righteous. He didn't have any. That's the Gospel. And the Gospel was good for Noah before Christ. And it was good for the story that Jesus told before His death through sacrifice. And so is Noah offered substitution. It's speaking somehow God is going to in the future make the remedy for sin. There will be a substitute. Let us in the horrific reality and story of the flood of Noah. Hear the Gospel. Every one of us in here, whether we are in Christ or outside of Christ, the Gospel is there. Our sin. Don't just look at them. Look at yourself. Our sin by nature is wicked and wretched and deserving to be wiped out in a flood. The other reality is that God clearly hates sin. And His patience will not endure forever. It will come to an end in eternal judgment.
And yet, we see that through the perfect sacrifice of the seed of the woman that He promised at the get-go of redemptive history, God has purposed and He will fulfill the spread of His glory for all whom He gathers into His ark. So let's, whether you've been born of God for 30 years or will today, flee from sin to the ark. Flee to the grace of Christ. And every one of us Christian people, as we wake up today and tomorrow and the next day, understand that by God's grace, We are in the ark and only by His grace. And that all the dead corpses floating underneath us ought to be us, but aren't us only because we found favor, grace in the cross of Christ. And so, let us Glorify God by enjoying Him and His mercy as a treasure forever. Father, we do. Oh, I pray we do. So desire to feel the impact of Holy Scripture upon our souls. And may You in every one of us, our deadness of heart, cause repentance to rise. When we feel lethargic towards Your truth, we beg of You, find favor in the sweet-smelling sacrifice who was our substitution, Jesus Christ. May You make us stronger evangelists. May we wake up with an overwhelming sense that judgment is coming. May it cause our mouths to be open warning people to flee from the wrath that is to come. To the glory of Jesus Christ. Oh Father, continue to minister by Your Holy Spirit to every heart and to every soul in here in these ensuing moments through Jesus Christ.